There's no problem too big or small, no issue too hot or cold, and no subject these gentlemen won't talk about. Let's head into the lab to see what they're working to figure out today. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grombacher, and we've got an awesome show for you coming up. This week, Centauri and I were joined by Brent Menke. Brent is a professional chef and consultant. We had a great conversation that went from his experience as a chef on yachts going across the Atlantic to the farm and table movement and operating a farm and table restaurant to the importance of high quality food and how people can be mindful of what they are eating. Brent is launching a website and YouTube channel as we speak called Atlas Culinaire. And in the meantime, you can find him on Twitter and Instagram as Chef Menke, C-H-E-F-M-E-N-K-E. If you'd like to take action on any of the things that we talked about, click contact us in the show notes and we'll get you what you need to make that happen. Thanks as always for listening. Remember to tell a friend. That's enough about that. Let's go. Let's get into it and get down to it. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grombacher. Joining me as always is Centauri Minor. Hello, folks. Helping us move from awareness to action today is my friend Brent Menke, a chef and restaurateur. Welcome, Good. sir. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Centauri, should be good. would you say that you have a green thumb? Not at all. I would say that I have, I don't know. So in fifth grade, this is a fun story. In fifth grade, I took a botany class at ASU. And, in fifth grade? Uh, in fifth grade. I was a bit of a nerd. And uh, while presenting, this is a little off topic, while presenting, I kept getting the words organism and orgasm confused, which as a fifth grader, I had no idea. But any other college students in the room thought that was hilarious. It wasn't for a while that I understood what happened. And that's my only botany story, so that's what you got. That is really funny. Well, good enough. Uh, well, we're excited to talk a little bit more in depth about our food. We had Greg Peterson from the Urban Farm on a couple of weeks ago, um, so it'll be great to have a, a chef's perspective on everything. Absolutely. Um, and obviously, the food we eat is extremely important. So, uh, just wanted to get a little bit of background. How, how did you become interested, or how does one become a chef? Uh, almost every chef's going to probably have an interesting story, but I think they're always going to say the career actually finds you. You don't actually go seek out that career. There's something that happens, you know, where you find yourself in a situation where you're either making food, you're in a restaurant, you need a job, maybe you even start off as a server, and then you just kind of get this this itch. You know, I my first culinary experiences were when I was at uh, University of Arizona. So I was down there. I was a uh, marketing major, kind of minoring in sociology at the time. Uh, I had this great little apartment off campus, but I had absolutely no money to be able to go off on dates. I thought, you know what, I'm just going to cook right here. I'd had some experience you know, doing some cooking. It's always just been deeply embedded in my own family. You know, cooking is something that's important. And so learned at least a few of the tricks. And certain found, it's like, you know what, if you can feed somebody, they're extraordinarily grateful for it. They love sure. it. It's And to be able to bring my dates back to my place, I'm like, well, it solved two problems. So <laughs> being, being a chef You're was a crafty man. It was it was both practical and sexy. So yeah, I, uh, that's that's how I got started into it. But that's that's only where it began. And it wasn't until I actually graduated, and uh, I was looking for a job, and I really wanted to be on the ocean. So I uh, moved back east, and I was absolutely dead broke, and I needed a job desperately, just right out of school, running up credit card debts like crazy. And I'm like, you know what? I want to be on the ocean. So I literally opened up the boat, you know, the phone book to boats. It's like boat anchors, boat builders, boat charters. I'm like, 
a charter and they got to know where jobs are and they got you know, fortune does in fact favor the bold. Go down the list, called about 35 of them, got one call back. Next day, went in, suit and tie as you do for an interview. You know, the guy looks at me and says, I've never seen a deckhand wearing a suit and tie. <laughs> he goes, but in this industry, you know, presentation goes a long way. And at the time, I had no idea what he's talking about. I was thinking, like a fishing boat or something. And no, he called me back three days later. 175-foot motor yacht, it's in the Caribbean, and it's leaving for Europe tomorrow. Can you be on the next plane out? And you know when you've been given a decision in your life that's going to change everything. It's like that moment, you're like, and yes, yes, I'll do it. I'd love it. Okay, what do I need to do? And literally just packed up everything that I own, stuck it in a storage unit, and I was on a plane out. And, you know, called up the folks and just said, hey, I'm heading to the Caribbean. I'll call you two weeks. I'll buy, you know, no questions, no answers. Like, I'm out of here. <laughs> Goodbye. And crossed the Atlantic for the first time. Saw Europe for the first time. I uh, started working in the kitchen, just helping the chef during charters. And then uh, she went on vacation, and the captain says, hey, you know, hey, would you just like to be able to cook for the crew? I'm like, sure. We liked it enough that he gave me her salary and kept me on for a month doing that. And I just I fell in love. After that, self-studies, working underneath other chefs, and it was really there that I met um, a chef on one of the other yachts that really kind of taught me what it was to be a chef on yachts. And then from there it was school. So Culinary Institute of America, Chiang Mai Thai Cooking School in Chiang Mai, Thailand, wow. uh, the Sushi Academy in Los Angeles. It was, you know, uh, pastry over in France. And my, my wife is French, so over near a village, nearby famous uh, Chocolatier and Patissier. I just dodged at his place, learned pastry and chocolates and uh, from there it's just travel the world pick everything you can up just be a sponge read like mad and my culinary journey kind of continued on to there until I finally uh, landed in restaurants and had something of my own wow that's incredible that is incredible what was the uh, you, you rattled off a lot of what seemed like very impressive places to, to study which was the most challenging or hardest or uh, Artist. I don't know if that's Artist. the best term. I would definitely say it was uh, on the job. On the job, because you know, you're you can't just say, ah, oh, I screwed that up, I got a C on that. It's like, uh, yeah, you've got to be able to feed, and especially when you're talking about yachting at that level. I mean, these were vessels that you know were charging for hundreds of thousands of dollars a week. So you're talking about tens of thousands of dollars per person. I mean, they're expecting, you know, Michelin star quality food every single time. So making mistakes is just not something that you're really given that kind of um, allowance of, you know, so the days were very long. You're, you're talking about 18 hours, you know, a day standing on your feet, you're, you're living where you work, you know, there was just nonstop. It's having to be able to find food wherever you're at. I mean, suddenly you pull into a, you know, a port in, you know, in Spain or France or Greece, and you could be in all those countries within three days. So you're having to not just change, you had to change currencies, you had to change languages, you had to wow. change cultures, you had to change your cuisine to be able to fit what you could find, you didn't know what you were going to find. Then you're in places like Alaska, and then pretty soon you're having to be able to have a provisioner that flies it in on seaplanes, and where you're, my favorite though, provisioning via helicopter. Now that was cool. So I mean, these are vessels that, I mean, obviously, these are you know, heads of state, billionaires, rock stars and movie stars were the guests of these people. They weren't the people actually chartering the boats themselves. I mean, they were kind of like the top of the top. Uh, an amazing life while it lasted, and an incredible education, but hard. I mean, the, the skill and level that they're really expecting, it, it's hard. Uh, my hats go off to chefs and 
people that are in that industry everywhere. Anybody who wants to get into it, I will give you forewarning, prepare to work. And I hope that you love it. And I mean, that is an industry where it is, it is nothing but pure passion. Where do you think you, um, one of my questions was going to be, where do you think you learn more than the formal training or the experiential? Uh, I would say that the formal training teaches you um, technique, teaches you that, that type of technique, and it teaches you discipline and trying to be able to make sure that your recipes are what they are every time, especially when it came to baking. You know, baking isn't, you know, it, the decorating is an art, but all the things that have to go into it is a science. I mean, you can't be off by, you know, grams. You have to be like, you know, weighed on the mark, know what your product is, and it's got to be correct in every single time. So the difficulty in trying to be able to perfect things like pastry is how do you do that at one? Like, it could be different elevations. I could be working at, you know, a, a villa, say, like in the Alps, or it could have been, you know, down on the yacht, or it could have been cooking in an airplane, like in one of their private jets. So to try to be able to make all those things work, it, it takes technique and it takes discipline. And then do that on a boat. And then you're moving <laughs> on a boat. Everything's moving left and right and up and down and things are pouring on top of you and doors are opening up over cabinets and you're crossing. You know, the worst crossing we ever did was in the middle of a tropical storm across the Atlantic. Three days, 30 foot waves, you know, 70 mile an hour winds. I mean, it was it was every bit of horrible that you could possibly imagine. Didn't eat, didn't sleep, just throwing up constantly, but you've got to be able to battle through that because when you're on that ship, everything that you'll ever need is all you're ever going to need because you're out in the middle of the Atlantic. There's no turning around. There's no going back. There's no there's no rescue. It's You've got to have each other's backs. But I have to admit, you know, the, it's probably the freest I ever felt was that very first transatlantic crossing. Because again, you know, you just give up everything and you're in the middle of the Atlantic and it's just the stars and the water and there isn't anything within eyeshot. You take that radar and maybe throw it out to like 25 miles or max range and there's nothing on the radar and there's nothing on the radio and there's, it's just you and the rest of the world. And there's something that was so free about that. Incredible, just incredible. I believe it. So you got your sea legs and then I uh, came back on the land and opened up a opened up a, a restaurant in Massachusetts. Yes, Tell us that's a about that. Correct. Well, it was one of the gentlemen that I uh, worked with uh, for many years on his yacht, to motor yacht Paraffin, and this was Michael Kittredge. He was the founder of Yankee Candle, and he was looking to be able to get back into business with his son, uh, producing another line of candles. But he needed a restaurant because he wanted to create a destination. So they picked this uh, beautiful destination in New England, in Western Massachusetts, which is really the breadbasket of New England, uh, but it's you know near the Mohawk Trail, it's not too far away from the Berkshires. He's like, I wanna build it here. But it was in the middle of nowhere. And he goes, and I need something that's gonna drive traffic. You're not gonna drive 30 minutes to an hour to two hours if you can't have something to eat. He goes, Brent, you know what I want? He goes, you've been cooking on my yachts. I brought you here because I want you to do what you do out here. And he goes, I don't know what I want. He goes, but I know I want to hear it. And so I just kind of came and said, okay. Uh, it was on the tip of everybody's tongue, you know, about eight years ago, which was, you know, Farm the Table. I was lucky enough to be able to secure the name, you know, The Farm Table. And we did a Farm the Table restaurant. So we had a 110-acre farm. We had edible gardens that went all the way around it. It was... It was a colonial farmhouse that was originally constructed in 1790, and we took that. We had to completely change. We had to lift it, gut it, tear down the back end, built a full basement underneath that housed our bakery, 
and wine cellars and locker rooms and dry stores. Uh, and we built a restaurant that really was supposed to be able to resemble what it used to look like you know, way back when. It, we wanted it to feel old. We wanted to have the history. But everything that we took down, we recycled and put it back into the building. Out there, when you talk about farm to table, it isn't just the mindset of, like, okay, you buy you know, food around us. It's products around you. It's like all the furniture was actually manufactured within 50 miles of us. The marble for the bar was quarried within 75 miles of us. All the seafood is procured within 100 miles of us. But then you've got your goats and chickens and lambs and beef and pork and chicken. You know, all those all those proteins are growing around really within about 25 miles. I love that I had my own dairy man that would come to my back door and drop off you know milk and heavy cream and buttermilk and half and half and, and all the fresh cheeses. And you're talking about that trail right up through Vermont. We're 10 minutes away from the Vermont border, so we had the best cheeses, beers, distilled spirits. You know, but it was the spirit of community. And I think that's really what farm to table, you know, it's, you say, okay, you want to be able to buy things that are around you, but really what it comes down to is community. You're building community amongst the farmers, amongst your patrons, you're building community, you know, within your own personnel that you have at the restaurant. And the idea being is the closer you can keep those food miles to you, the more dollars you keep inside that community, the tighter that you keep everybody together, that everybody feels like the jobs that they're doing have meaning and have purpose. And that's really what we wanted to do with the farm tables, that everything mattered. The amount of garbage we produced mattered, the amount that we recycled, composted, bought, uh, the, the, the goods that we sold, you know, trying to be able to say, what can we do, how can we be, how can we be better, and how can we best support via, really was just conscious capitalism, support the environment, support the employees, support my patrons, and also have something that is also going to be economically viable because it's not sustainable if you can't pay for it. Mm. You know, if it fails, it's not sustainable. So what kind of uh, clientele or what kind of folks do you think are attracted to the farm to table? Oh, gosh, I mean, we were starting, it depends. I mean, if I could actually get out in front of them as my guests, I could really convince them, you know, the importance of what farm to table is all about. Uh, so we had a really a wide variety, but we had some guests that were really to the extreme. Like you'd walk in and they would be looking at the menu and just say like, you know, like, where is, you know, where's the beef coming from today? Okay, what's its diet? You know, so to the wow. certain points, like, okay, well, this one's coming from my little farmer's name, Bruce Jenks. Cow is a vegan. You know, it's, was, was the cow, was it raised on grass? You know, what was his name? And the, it's like, no, you don't name your animals. You know, they're, your food, and that's a different, um, that's a different story. It would be a good one, too, just talking about veganism. But people, uh, people that came there, were looking to be educated on what it meant to be farm to table. They wanted to know where the food was grown. And they also wanted to know and felt that it was important to them. Now, there's a lot of people that obviously don't. I think that the farther to the middle of the United States becomes less and less important. But, you know, out on the left and out on the right, you know, you'll, you'll find that it's becoming more important. And I think that as we're starting to find, the very health of the nation is becoming more dependent upon if we can produce better food and if we can actually change hearts and minds about how people eat. Mm. Because you start talking about healthcare costs, we could tackle healthcare costs just by changing the diet of America. Right. I mean, think about the costs we could take out in terms of heart disease, diabetes, cardiovascular, stroke, um, cancer, uh, autism. You know, so there's so many different ways to be able to affect the health of the nation just based on what we're eating. So yeah, for me, Farm to the Table was, it was, it was a much larger issue trying to be able to convince America and at least the patrons, I shouldn't say America, 
I had my little piece of the corner out there, and I was also preaching in the choir. They got it, they wanted it, and they loved it. And I'd like to be able to see that message, just kind of be able to organically grow across the U.S. And so what kind of premium is there on the farm-to-table model as far as the consumers? You know, there there is. I mean, you think about, you know, mass food is produced because, you know, really pay dictates behavior. People are looking for, you know, the best deal almost constantly. Everybody's looking for a bargain. You have to have something that truly differentiates yourself to be able to say, okay, I am willing to pay more for that. And so, you know, for me to be able to say, okay, we're farm the table and to do to produce the food that I want to produce, I had to be just that much better than the guys next to me. I like people to think that out there, you know what, we raise the bar. But to be able to raise that bar, you need to be able to get better employees. You need to create a culture of excellence. You need to create you know, a culture amongst your guests that they're expecting excellence. And you need to be able to train your staff on how to be able to sell what it is that you're selling. It's like, guys, I need you to know, where's your food coming from? They need to be educated on what that is. So I needed everybody to buy in. But you know, once they all bought in, I mean, the numbers started increasing. My menu prices began to stabilize. The uh, the farmers became, you know, partners, you know, rather than just like, you know, them just trying to be able to sell me stuff. You know, they really became partners in, in my business because they were just so important to creating the quality that I needed to try to be able to sell what I did. You know, and sometimes you have to, um, to pay a little bit more to get that level of quality. And I think that if you're really, uh, you really do want to feel better with your own diet, is it going to cost a little bit more? It might. You know, but um, I think the overall benefits are worth that. And I don't think that people are going to get that until you teach them that, until leadership actually says, you know what, you know, America, you're, you're kind of fat. And the foods that you're eating are kind of killing you. And that's leading to these huge health care costs. And to be able to tackle all these things, we just need to, the same way that we did at the farm table. It's, you tackle everything at once and treat everything as being important. And just t- chip away at it bit by bit by bit by bit. <coughs> Well, that's awesome stuff, and we, we covered a lot there that, that I want to try to unpack. This was about eight years ago when you, when you opened it? No, we started this uh, project. We started thinking about this project back in about 2009. By uh, 2010, you know, I committed to be able to do that. By 2011, we were open. Okay. So we opened up the doors in 2011 and had a, immediately our first setback. We had a tremendous snowstorm that just knocked us on our butt. You know, we got 24 inches of head, wet, you know, wet, heavy snow that we weren't expecting, and killed the power for about a week. You know, I lost about $6,000 worth of pre-prepared product that we had ready for the opening. So that knocked back our opening and it knocked back production. And it just, it, I was like, oh, restaurants, they're just hard. I mean, I'm sorry, restaurants are hard business to be in. They're really rewarding, but just the things that you aren't expecting are the things that they, they just sweep you off your feet sometimes. If you do it well, what kind of margin do you you're doing everything absolutely right you probably expect you know three percent five percent wow yeah so i mean for the restaurateurs out here you know when people go in those restaurants and say wow it's expensive like i, I doubt it you know they're not trying to <laughs> they're, they're, they're trying that they are trying to do their level best to be able to give you a good product i mean they really are uh but things cost what they cost you know and now in a changing environment of here in Arizona, we just raise the minimum wage, and that minimum wage can continue to go up, you know, so because that goes up, it goes across, you know, so many other different systems. It goes across, you know, from what the farmers have to be able to uh, get for their crop, to distribution, to finally when you have the provisioners that are bringing your goods, to your receiving it, to prepping it, to getting out to the table, when you raise those wages, that will actually be passed on. 
I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I think those things do have to happen. But if you start seeing your food prices begin to go up, you know, that's what happens over time. That's just, a, you know, it's wage inflation, it's price inflation. And I think people just have to learn to be able to, uh, to deal with it. I think we've been very lucky. We've had very cheap food for many decades in America. And that's what mass-produced farming gives you. Right, the dollar menu. It's not a dollar for, it's, 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 it's not a mystery as to why it costs a dollar. No, for, it's not. For, I almost called it food, but it's not a mystery why it costs a dollar for those items. To circle back, did was was there some kind of a script or a playbook for everything you described about providing meaning and purpose for the employees and sourcing these? Or how, how did you figure that out? Like any good business, a restaurant needs to be able to have a reason to live. And so that was one of the things that I developed before we even opened the doors. Okay. If you're going to drive people to your place, especially over such long distances, you know, I mean, the, the general community that we were in, you're talking 2,000 people. I mean, 2,000 people cannot support a restaurant of 150 seats. Of course not. It, it just can't. So you've got to be able to draw them from much farther away. The next major town was almost um, 45 minutes away. Boston, two hours away. Hartford, Connecticut, an hour and a half away. How do you drive traffic if you don't have a great message? You know, you can certainly drive it with a lot of marketing, but I think that it's better to be able to drive it internally. Because if you can drive it internally and everybody starts buying into it, again, it affects the quality, it affects the atmosphere, it affects your service, it affects uh, the people that provide you those things. Everything, everything actually revolves around everything. And that's how you both make money keep the spirit up, and, and drive profit. Easy peasy. <laughs> Way easier said than done. Sure. Way if, easier if said if than you done. you say so, yes. Way easier said than done. Um, so it's, and this is, it, it's interesting, I'm, I'm thinking about, as you're talking about all the, uh, all the training you've had as, as, as a chef, I don't know how many years it's been, but it seems like celebrity chefs and reality shows involving food they haven't been around for that long, have they? Maybe no. Hell's Kitchen was one of the first, or Top Chef. Oh, I mean, you think about the food, uh, Emeril Lagasse. I, I mean, Emeril Lagasse, you're talking about the Food Channel, you know, and the Food Network, and he was really, he was the first. And you're talking about a channel to say, hey, we're going to go out there, we're going to take a chance. You know, they had a few little programs that were on there, and it just found that it resonated with people. But food resonates with people. I mean, you've got to admit... You know, like some of your earliest memories always revolve around food. You know, my yeah. family, our our livelihood, and every good thing that ever happened in our lives almost always revolved around food. That celebrations. Hey, let's eat. You did something great. Let's eat. Okay, you did really crappy in your grades. Uh, you're gonna get beanie weenies. You know, it's like, oh, great mom, thanks. Darn it. It's like, oh, either that or you're gonna go off to your favorite restaurant and get like a full rack of barbecue ribs. I was like, yes. Yes. That was that was that was my kind of go-to thing when I did well. It's all right. We're gonna take you to your favorite restaurant. Uh, so, you know, food has always been that part of my life, but it's a part of so many people's lives. You know, that hearth and home and grandma, and, you know, you, you smell something and it brings back a memory. As a matter of fact, it's one of our most psychologically strong memory creators that we have. All of a sudden, this smell comes in, you're like, oh, you know, that takes me back to all this time. And I was over at grandma's house and she was making these cookies and it smells just like that. And, but to bring food and people together, it actually brings people from disparate disparate backgrounds. You know, I just finished up an around-the-world trip uh, with my family. Opportunity to be able to teach them uh, what the world was all about. We did that for a year. We traveled 
uh, extensively through Asia, uh, parts of uh, South America, Australia, Fiji, gosh, Europe. And to be able to sit down with all these people, the one thing that I always say is, you know what, you put food on the tra table, nice bottle of wine, and I promise you, there will be some politics potentially. There could be a couple like, ah, you know, can't say that. But more often than not, it helps to bring people together. And I love that thing. I love that about food. You know, there's people want to get together. You know, I know there's been a lot of, uh, you know, talking about religion, people maybe they don't want to go to church, but I think that people really do want to congregate. And so restaurants, you know, have become that place where, you know, how can we all get together? You know, be out in public and do what it is that we do. And I, I think that's one of the beautiful things. That's what I loved about restaurants. That's what I love about cooking. Is there a um, repository, for lack of a better term, for the farm-to-table restaurants that are local? So how would I find one in Phoenix or D.C. or Indianapolis? Uh, yeah, you got, you know, Local First is a good organization. They can start to be able to put out some, you know, where those restaurants are. They try to be able to go as local as they can. I mean, let's face it, we're in Phoenix. It's a desert. You know, fish is not local. Coffee's not local. Oils are not local. You know, there's a lot of things that aren't, but there's people that are trying to at least do what they can. They can roast those coffees here, uh, you, or I should say, you know, Queen Creek. You know, they're growing olive trees to make olive oil, and I think that's brilliant. You know, pistachios and citrus, and then you got McClendon Farms that's, you know, growing vegetables, you know, during the season when they can be able to do that. You know, different uh, bakeries that are trying to be able to make the breads here, brewers, distillers. I mean, I, I really applaud, and you're seeing that it's a growing movement. It's but it's still kind of in its infancy. So uh, definitely, all those places would love to be able to have your business. Because again, you know, you keep that money in the community. You give to Starbucks and it goes, boop, you know, it just kind of goes away someplace else. It doesn't stay here, but you spend it on them. You know, they're keeping it right here. And that's a beautiful thing. So it seems as though there's a trend, and I, I don't want to call it a trend. There's more talk about healthier foods. There's more talk about farm to table. Is that the same, or do those just happen to be happening at the same time? Well, I think the people that are more conscious about their food uh, tend to be able to lump them together, but I don't think that they're necessarily the same thing. You know, just because they're a local farm doesn't necessarily mean that they're making good food. Right. You know, you still have plenty of farms that are using you know, steroids and antibiotics and pesticides and the rest of it. And to a certain extent, I, I can get it. You know, you don't want to be able to, if you've got like a, a virus that's going through your herd, you're just not going to let him die. You know, but the traditional practice was in my family, we used to be in the beef business as well as we're continuing to be in the farming business. You know, the animals would come in. So say you take like a little steer, he comes in, you know, you snip, uh, basically you snip his nuts, you tag the ear, you put a, uh, there's a capsule that goes in one ear and that's basically the antibiotic. There's another one that goes in the other ear and that was the growth hormone. And then they give them, you know, give them a brand and tip the horns, you know, so they don't have horns to be able to injure the cowboys and that animal goes away. And that was how typically about 20 years ago, how the cattle industry in the United States was. Then they moved them into big old pens, you know, where they basically give them a feed. And that feed was steamed flaked corn, cotton burrs, oats, silage, molasses. They blend this all up and they pour it down the pens. and. The animals come in at 700 pounds, and they leave it about 1,100 pounds. <laughs> After you know, how long? Uh, it could be a matter of months. Two weeks. You Jeez. Know, yeah, like three months, four <laughs> months. You know, but it depends on where the animal came in and where he leaves. And different breeds grow faster than other breeds. You know, and it also depends on where the breed, uh, or where the yard itself is. So we were in that business for a lot of years, and I, 
actually helped you know get my dad out of that business because I could just see that there was there was a lot of pitfalls for him. But you've got to be able to feed a nation as well. Right. And so how do you do that? Is there enough grazing land to be able to feed all those cattle? I don't know that there are, and I'm not too sure that we can do it effectively and cheaply enough to be able to feed people that need. I hate to say it, but cheaper food. You start going to you know, the, the poorest of communities, they can't afford to be able to have organic, you know, perfect food, you know, where it's all farm to table movements. I mean, how do, we, how do we get them better food? Because they live in food deserts. I mean, let's face it, you know, they're eating fast food because it's cheaper than going to the grocery store and making it themselves. And nobody ever takes in the full cost. Like, you know, okay, you go to a restaurant, you go to a restaurant like that, and you buy your food and you take it home, or you go home and you make it. Well, you have to be able to get in your car or the bus and then go there and then pick it up and then you bring it home and it means you have to have a refrigerator, a place to store it, pots and pans, a dry pantry to be able to cook that with and then after you're done, how much did you actually waste and spoil? Nobody ever takes in the full cost of what it means to make your own. Uh, I would hope you're seeing with the advent of the internet more people helping with that but we need to start coming up with some community gardens that really in the worst communities, I shouldn't say the worst, you know, they're not communities they're just people that need you know they need some assistance to be able to have a community garden in some of those places it's a it's a point of pride and where you can literally say look this is yours get what you need harvest what you need feed yourself and your family and I think you know it's a diet these days of more fruits and vegetables and you know nuts and seeds and berries is gonna be and just enlighten up on the protein is gonna be a better diet going forward the cows are out of the barn, though, on that one, Brent. How do we get the cows back in? That's uh, no, oh. that's, that's called a pun, Centauri. I got it. I understood. How do we get, <laughs> how do we get people to eat, get people to eat less meat? Is that gonna? Is that? I don't even know how you would go about that. How, how do you? Well, I would think you know, there's certain things like uh, fishing. Let's just take fish right now. I would say that within the next 20 years, if we go on the rate that we are. Wild-caught fish is going to be a real luxury. It's already starting to become one. I mean, fish prices have gone, like, really through the roof. But you're seeing fish fisheries crashing a lot of places around the world. If you're, let's say, our bluefin tuna population, I mean, their numbers are down, like, more than, like, 90% of where they were, like, 25 years ago. But it suddenly bluefin tuna became popular, and we fished the hell out of it. And you take something like um, Chilean sea bass. Now that's a, a Patagonian toothfish. Well, they changed the name and suddenly found out they can take this, freeze this, and bring it back to the United States and still have amazing quality. All of a sudden, boom, that takes off. Now all of a sudden we're overfishing it. Cod used to be so abundant, I mean, the saying kind of went, you could walk across their backs on water. Now, I mean, those fisheries have really collapsed to the point where we need to protect them. So, I mean, I, I would say that there are certain organizations, like for instance, there's a company that I used to use out of Boston called Red's Best. And Red's Best used to uh, embed, well, let's just say the small fishermen would come to the dock. And they would take that fishing boat, where those fish were caught, and they would put that onto a tag. So when the fish came to me, I could say, this is when it was caught, this is the boat that it came off of, and, and when it was caught. So there was like a provenance to that. But they were starting to embed scientists inside the fleet to say, okay, let's monitor the health and wealth of those fisheries. So they started creating a quota system. Okay, the boats can only catch so much, and all of a sudden, boom, they cut it off, and they say, okay, season's ending, and they put it upon the uh, you know, the processing plants to say, all right, well, guess what, guys? Now you have to be able to shut off your buying. 
And so they start controlling that and they start looking for other species to kind of fill those gaps, you know, like mackerel or scrod or fluke, you know, things that aren't necessarily as popular, but still really good fish. You just have to learn how to be able to prepare them. But cod was just being well over fish and had to be protected. And they started to do that. You can see that happening, other, like they did, you know, something similar in Costa Rica. They went over, they bought up, a private organization bought up all of the fishing licenses, bought them all up. And all they did is they said, okay, now we're gonna lease them back out to the fishermen and controlled their fisheries. But you have to be able to control it. I mean, in my own lifetime, I watched uh, the Sea of Cortez be fished out to commercial um, shrimping. I mean, you can still go down there and get a little bit of shrimp, but it wasn't like when I was a kid, you go down there and you get a big old bucket of shrimp and you know, it costs, you know, costs like three bucks. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't anything. But commercial fisheries around the world are starting to uh, collapse. You know, you're seeing, uh, you know, the ocean temperature is warming. You're seeing that we saw, I mean, firsthand when we went diving on the Great Barrier Reef, the bleaching. Well, those coral reefs support so many other types of species. You're starting to see those fish populations also being affected because of the bleaching of that coral. Again, everything affects everything else. Right. I think that's where we need people to get to. Do we change everything all at once? No. But guess what? Programs like this, just a few people at a time, that just starts people to make a difference. You start seeing more farm the table. You start seeing more organics. You start seeing being people being more conscientious about what they buy, where they buy, how they buy, how they eat. That's, that's how we change. Yeah, that's the answer to the question, right? It's These problems are way too big to get your arms all the way around, so just focus on what's in front of yourself and how you and your family consume things, and the things that you're working on, the things that you're focused on. And if everybody did that, well, guess what would happen? Because everything would sort of be okay. Right? Everything would change. So tell us a little bit about uh, how the concierge food services work in that, like the Blue Apron and things similar to that. No, I, I mean, their shtick is that it costs you less to be able to um, to do that than it is to like, eat out or even you know, make it yourself. Uh, the only thing that I don't like about it is just the amount of packaging. You know, it's like, oh, you know, you get like one head of garlic and it's a, or you know, one head of garlic and it's in, it's in a bag and you get a, another thing of meat and it's in a bag and you get, you know, a head of lettuce and it's in a bag and then the whole thing comes in a box that's packed with styrofoam, that's packed with ice packs. So it's like, okay, you take away, you know, styrofoam, the packs, the box, the plastic, you just traded one problem for another one, which is the garbage. Hmm. That, that part of it I don't like. Uh, so, but I would say there will be a solution, you know, as things start to become more uh, automated and tight, instead of having to deliver those things from like far off distribution centers, how about if they were just done locally? What if our farms were actually grown locally? You know, we were, had this conversation, you and I, George, had this conversation, you know, the other day. You know, if shopping malls are starting to fail, why not put the farms inside the shopping malls? You know, reduce the food miles. You know, instead of growing them like out in the sun, let's just control all the conditions and maybe put them under ultimate conditions. You know, the perfect light and the perfect water conditions and reduce the amount of inputs, the amount of pesticides, the amount of fertilizers, the amount of basically waste that they create. If you can control all that, now all of a sudden you've controlled, you know, a, a bunch of things. Because in, you know, farms they plant today and gravity does its thing, you know, they spray you know round up on the fields and then the rain comes in and those wash down and then eventually you find the way to the streams which find the way to the oceans which then you start having knock-on effects so how do we get and change those things well if we can keep the food closer distribution closer and then you've got you know ride hailing services that can also use like lyft or uber 
that then delivers those things kind of more real time, less packaging, don't need as much refrigeration, mm. but they're done like quickly. You know, that's that's something that could be another future business. So right there, hey, keeping our food closer, maybe just created brand new economies in all these major cities. I mean, think about how much it takes to be able to feed a city like Phoenix. I mean, it's just a gross tonnage of it. And if you ever want to see something really fascinating, go to Paris. And just outside of Paris, there is a city in amongst itself called Rungis. And Rungis is the distribution hub of France for all of its food, livestock, flowers. It's, it's incredible. You can imagine like, you know, stadiums, like football stadiums, but a bunch of them just filled with like, one is just beef and one is just poultry and one is just flowers and another one's just vegetables and one is just fish. It is fascinating to be able to see how it all kind of flows and runs. But the sheer tonnage to be able to feed, you know, feed the city and feed the nation, it's incredible. That, that is incredible, and I don't know that I would want to see that necessarily, but <laughs> it's one of those, I, I read about earlier today how at least 20% of our food is imported now, and I'm sure it's more than that. That was probably an old statistic, but talk about the opposite of local, 20% of our food is imported from other places. Well, because we like to be able to have food that is not necessarily in season. Mm -hmm. Now, that is farm to table. Now, that's one thing I do like about farm to table is it's seasonal. You eat food when it's around you. You know, so guess what? It's winter months and it's around you. When I was there in the east, you know, it was root veg. That's, you got to be able to deal with, you know, carrots and onions, potatoes and butternut squash and uh, beets, you know, things that you could actually sell her for longer periods of time. And that's what farm the table is kind of about. You eat things when it's around you. Uh, but, you know, that's not what we're doing. You can go to the grocery store right now and, and find things that are out of season. You know, in January, you can get strawberries, which you shouldn't be able to anywhere in the United States, but yeah, you do. Uh, just kind of go down all the species, peaches, apples, potatoes. I mean, everything's got a season for it. But I think that's one of the things that I do like about some of the new aquaponics and the rest of it is that you don't necessarily have a growing season. You just put everything under optimal conditions and grow whatever. Right. But you have to figure out about, you know, how does pollination work as well? You still need the bees. You still need certain bugs to mm. ensure because when you have pollinators, you know, like tomatoes, for instance, you just can't plant a tomato plant and hope that it does what it does. You need to make sure that each one of those little flowers, you know, gets its... It needs some help. It needs its help. We need the bees, Sorry. We need the bees. I hear that. They are the key mm -hmm. to everything. Bees are the key to everything. So That's, is there a lot of innovate... Is there innovation going on in growing food vertically inside in that space? Oh, yeah. So yeah, I know there's, that there's a ton going on with, uh, with cannabis, and it's like... I've ask my supercomputer to solve this problem of how do I grow amazing weed next door to my house, <laughs> but not necessarily food, but it is translating well, over. Let's just say that they've actually kind of led the way. You know, okay, if you can actually grow weed like that and you can start to see profits, can we potentially start doing that with other varieties of food that are also equally valuable to our food system? Yes. The answer to that is yes. I was watching a um, YouTube video the other day about a farm that was doing exactly that. And it was interesting. They were growing everything on these like floatable rafts. And so they would, as they, everything continued to grow, they just kept kind of floating the rafts down until it got to the point of harvest. Then you bring the raft back up to the front and then replant, and then just keep floating it on down. And so they're trying to be able to develop out new technologies that best suit that plant and bringing the minerality into the water. But how they were using fertilizer, I thought was fascinating. They were using tilapia. 
So they had giant tilapia tanks, and they were using the excrement from the tilapia that was then filtered and put into the water that was then being the fertilizer for the plants. And then they were also taking, when the tilapia got to a certain height, or a certain weight, excuse me, they would then harvest the tilapia. So they were nice. trying to be able to close that loop in a little bit. So with this problem, one of the things about importing is that you made a good example about Phoenix. Phoenix doesn't grow coffee. You can't have salmon, right? So you're always going to have people that have those tastes, and regardless, it's not possible or feasible for those things to be local. So this would kind of help with that. Yeah. That's why I think you know controlling all those growing environments would help out with those things. You could give people the kind of foods that they're looking for year-round, mm -hmm. but not necessarily have the, the downside of having to bring it in from, say, Mexico, Israel, Europe, you know, South America. You know, where they do have to have a lot of food miles that travel. You know, that, that energy expendency that you have to be able to get, you know, products to market. Yeah, and also, too, just the amount of waste. You think about the food waste that you get when you have to be able to transport that food all the way from South America to here. Because, you know, it's coming by ship, it's coming by truck, it's not necessarily coming by plane. You know, so it's coming here in days and weeks, not, not hours. And right. there's going to be a lot of lot of waste in that. So again, the more that we can keep our food like right here amongst us, that I, I truly do believe is going to be a way of the future. So for our listeners, the consumers, what are some of the things that they can do right now within their diet or spending habits to kind of pivot and make a change? Ooh, dig up your lawn, grow food. Okay. Yeah, dead serious. Dig up your lawn, grow some food. You know, it's there's so many things out here that do grow well. And there's a lot of indigenous species out here where you can actually find your own food. Uh, you know, pretty soon we're going to be in the season, you know, for prickly pears. The paddles are edible, the fruit is edible, and they're delicious. Uh, oddly enough, I just... You're suggesting that people eat cactus. They can eat cactus, absolutely. <laughs> That's one, that is one idea. But think about all the things you can grow in your backyard. I mean, there's so many different herbs, salads, tomatoes do really well out here. Basil does extraordinarily well. Eggplants, artichokes, bell peppers, uh, carrots, potatoes. You just have to have the right growing conditions. But you're talking about setting up. I mean, your original setup's going to cost you a little bit. But once you're up and set up, you can have something that's really sustainable and provide you, you know, with literally thousands of dollars worth of product that you don't have to go out to the grocery store and buy. And it's produced right there. So there's no energy expendency to actually bring it, you know, into your home. Where can people find a resource to get that started? So if I want to do that tonight, where do I go? Uh, I'll tell you, for the seeds alone, I found this great little seed company called uh, Baker Seed Company. You find that online. Actually, I bought a bunch of seeds and uh, gave them to my sister for a birthday present. So she's out there growing a very special hybrid variety tomato that it is a black tomato, jet black, the whole outside. But the inside, you cut it in, it's like like fire red and orange, and it's like just the coolest looking thing. But you know, find seeds. There's tons of different resources online. Finding like even Home Depot, great resource. Just go down oh. there. They sell seeds. They sell beds. They sell you all the things. They say, okay, I need to build a raised bed. Just ask them. I need to build a raised bed. How do I do that? Okay, I need to have soaker tubes. How do I do that? A drip system. How do I do that? They have classes on how to do that. Literally. So just, just go down and ask Home Depot. They're everywhere. From a from a chef's perspective, just in the, the whole awareness to action piece, listen to the conversation about a restaurant and they say it's farm to table, what should I be on the lookout for if I think that they might be sort of fishy? I think, ah, I don't necessarily believe that. Are there questions or what, what should I be aware of? Yeah, just ask them, you know, where did this come from? I mean, really, are you farm to table? Where did it come from? You know, and you've got to know that Phoenix has seasons as well. You know, right now, you know, the tomatoes are passed, strawberries are passed, 
you know, what are we getting, you know, currently? Uh, we're kind of coming to the end of a lot of the things. So, you know, I would say, you know, give them a little bit of slack. They're trying to be as local as they can. You know, start thinking, ask them, you know, who's, you know, who's roasting your beans? You know, where is your beef coming from? You know, there aren't that many uh, grass-fed beef, beef producers around here, but, you know, Arizona grass-fed, they are. They do a really nice job. You know, so I appreciate some of those companies that are out there trying to do the things that they can get year-round. Uh, a lot of the brews, you know, that uh, beers that are coming from around here, it's like, okay, we got this local wine. We've got such a great new local wine movement that's happening. I love it. Oh, wow. I love, I mean, I love some of the things they're producing. You know, it's Page Springs, Caduceus, uh, Sand Reckoner, uh, Dos Cabezas. And actually, I know the owners of Dos Cabezas and such nice people. You know, they're growing down in Wilcox and they're um, also producing in Sonoida. Uh, but the quality, the level of quality is really starting to be able to come up. And these are Arizona grapes that have their own special terroir that... I, I, there's something in it you can taste it like, man, this is an Arizona wine and it's and it's really good so the more that we can do to kind of support you in know, those new budding industries it's that's also again those, those are dollars that stay here in the state and it's producing new jobs all the time those things I love I mean I love you know new young farmers that are getting out there and trying to do their thing and it's farming has become you know, really such an industry you know for older people I mean, the average age of the farmer keeps getting older and older and older. The average, size, the average size of the farm keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But now you're starting to see this kind of cool movement. And I started seeing it back in Massachusetts. Small farms uh, trying to be able to grow things that are symbiotic, like the Three Sisters. The Three Sisters are corn, pole beans, and squash. The corn grows up, the squash, the, uh, the pole beans grow up the stock, and they provide cover for the ground so you don't get weeds and provide shade for the squash. So they grow in symbiosis with one another, and they don't compete. Mm. Brilliant. You know, so new farming methods that try to be able to produce new and interesting crops. Uh, the idea of bringing back new, uh, especially as a chef, heirloom varietal seed crops. So you start getting things that you just can't find in the grocery store. And I'm always dismayed when I go in the grocery store and you're like, okay, you got one type of mint. You got one type of basil. You got one type of carrot. But there's dozens of varieties of all of those things, and they're interesting. They look better, they have different nutritional contents, they're more vibrant, their flavors are different. You can have, you know, even from thyme, you know, that goes from like chocolate to lemon to uh, more of a traditional, I guess like a European style thyme. Uh, you can find all these different little flavor profiles that are just awesome to use in food. From a chef standpoint, give me cool, give me interesting, give me things you don't find anywhere else. Yeah. I put that on the plate and it looks gorgeous. That's what I want. Nice. So what are you working on right now? How can people learn more about you? How can they get involved with you? Yeah, I'm just really starting on a new project, and it's actually going to be a video-based uh, video project uh, called Atlas Cool and Air. And so the idea is I just really want to start cooking for people, doing it online. Obviously, that's not something that's new, but to try to be able to have part of it as education, part of it trying to be able to go off and show people how their food is being created, going to the different farms. I'm going over to France uh, this summer, so I'll be taking people to Spain, France, Italy, going through those markets, uh, producing things locally right over there, and just showing people how they can do it on their own. You know, my wife is French, we have a farm over there in France, and we are going to be growing our own. So the video program is going to be highly dedicated toward the things that we're growing right there in our own gardens. You know, we have chickens, we have ducks, we have rabbits, and um, 
We have a variety of fruit trees from apple, apricot, peach, cherry, a wild cherry, which is really interesting, uh, pear. I think that's all the trees that we've got. But it's all the different uh, fruit, uh, different varietals that we'll be growing in the garden. And just, hey, this is how you grow it. This is how you pick it. This is what you do with it. Awesome. Well, we will list in the notes of the show where you can find out about Atlas Culinaire. Culinaire. See, I would have said culinaire, but that's because I'm a... You're not sophisticated. But I, yes. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that's because I lack sophistication. Excellent. Centauri, what have we forgotten to talk about? That was great. Answered all my questions. Thank you. What else would you like to get off your chest, sir? I'm just... The only thing I like people to say is I love the fact of what you guys are trying to be able to do and helping the community address different issues that are in that. Love listening to your program, and I'm just really appreciative that you have me on today. Thanks for being Thank here. you very much. Special thanks to Academy Mortgage and Matthew McKean up here in North Scottsdale for letting us use their awesome facility today. Um, if you like what you heard, please subscribe to the show and tell a friend. And as always, keep questioning because the struggle is real. <laughs>